If you're new, I'm Jamie, and I am one of the pastors around here, and it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Grab one of the black ones from the pew in front of you. 1 Peter is found towards the back of the Bible on page 1014 of the church Bible. If you're not super familiar with how the Bible works, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the verse numbers are the little numbers. We'll be reading from verse 3 down to verse 5, right under the heading that is called, Born Again to a Living Hope. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. We're going to read verses 3 to 5. I'm going to pray for the Lord's help on our time together, and then we'll work our way through this passage a little bit at a time. It should be around 30 minutes or so. This is the most important part of our week. Almighty God, the creator of the universe, will now speak to us through His holy and inerrant Word. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have been so kind to reveal yourself to us through your word. And we thank you and give you praise that we don't have to wonder what you are like. We don't have to wonder how you think or feel. But you have revealed yourself to us through this word that we hold in our laps. And we ask now that your Holy Spirit would come. And that you would illuminate our eyes and give us eyes that would see the beauties of Jesus, hear the words of Jesus, and let the reality that we discussed this morning settle upon our hearts. Make us willing vessels to receive your word, and may the seed of your word find good soil in our heart to take root downward and to bear fruit upward for the glory of Jesus Christ alone. And God's people said amen. For a lot of years, I was next door neighbor to a chain-smoking general contractor whose small business never made him and his wife enough money to get them out of their 1,100-square-foot home that they lived in for decades. He drove a beat-up old pickup truck, and he wore a mullet before a mullet was cool again. And I don't think the man ever even owned a single shirt with buttons or (laughs) sleeves for that matter. He was a quiet neighbor for the most part, with the occasional exception of a Sunday afternoon when NASCAR was on. I liked him well enough, although for the 10 years or so that we lived next to each other, I'm not sure the man ever bothered to learn my name. When I read 
First and second Peter, I think of him. I think Peter is like him in a lot of ways. In your Bible, the letters of first and second Peter weren't written to Peter, they were written by Peter. Peter was a disciple of Jesus Christ, a retired professional fisherman. He grew up on the water, a rough and tumble, blue-collar kind of guy, ball cap, t-shirt with the sleeves torn off, and jeans, gritty, hard-working, good with his hands, not dumb, but not college-educated either. If you have a little knowledge of the Bible, you know Peter, as Paul had mentioned earlier, as the guy who denied Jesus three times before his crucifixion. It's a tragic story and one that marked Peter's life for the rest of his life. On the night before Jesus was betrayed and sent to the cross, he predicted that all of his disciples would abandon him. And Peter objected. Well, these weenies might, but I'm not going to. Not me. I'll die for you. But Jesus, fairly used to correcting old Peter, told him that before the rooster crows in the morning, you will have denied me three times. And it was true, of course. Peter did. And after the third denial, Peter heard that wretched rooster crow. And the Bible says that he ran away and wept bitterly. I suspect in his later years, Mr. and Mrs. Peter never kept roosters on the farm. Sort of like Captain Hook and the sound of a ticking clock. That was the sound of the rooster which haunted his mind. Jesus Christ rose from the dead on a Sunday morning. The women came to the tomb to find it empty and the Lord Jesus alive in good health. And Jesus told the women, tell my disciples and Peter to meet me in Galilee, as I said before. Tell the disciples and Peter. Why single out Peter? I suspect it was because when the women returned with the news that Jesus was alive, when they found the disciples in the place where they were hiding, it would have been very hard for Peter to face his master again. Because the last time that their eyes had met, Luke says, in all of the commotion, after Peter had denied the Lord, Luke's gospel records, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. That was the last time their eyes had met. And the risen Lord Jesus Christ wanted Peter to know, you've rejected me, but I have not rejected you. You're still my boy. And the Lord restores Peter to ministry. And so this resurrection morning, we read the letter of St. Peter, restored to ministry, St. Peter, former denier of Jesus, St. Peter. And we read of the soaring praise of Peter, the man for whom God showed mercy and gave a new life. Here's the big idea. 
the incredible mercy of God gives sin-dead sinners new life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which produces soaring praise from them and confident assurance in them. The incredible mercy of God gives new life to sin-dead sinners, which creates in them soaring praise and confident assurance. So we'll unpack this passage in three parts. We'll look first from searing pain to soaring praise in the first part of verse 3. From there, we'll look at from sin-dead sinners to resurrected saints. And then finally, from wimpy warriors to confident couriers. So we'll take a look at the first part of verse 3 again. From searing pain to soaring praise. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you look up in verse 1, you'll see that Peter addresses his epistle, his letter, to some folks that he calls elect exiles, chosen rejects, consequently it'd be a great name for a band. And these folks were scattered throughout the Roman provinces of what is modern-day Turkey, and they had been scattered through persecution for some other reason. They had left their homeland been separated from where they grew up, and now they were sojourners, resident aliens, which consequently is another really good name for a band. Peter writes this letter to these folks who were far from home to encourage them to endure the hardships that they were going through, the difficulties of being outsiders in a world that is completely opposed to them. And how does he start this letter of encouragement? By telling them to hang in there. You guys are doing great. One foot in front of the other. Or some other kind of platitude you could put on a cat poster. That's not what he does. He starts with soaring praise to Almighty God for giving life to the dead. The Bible teaches that there is one God who has eternally existed as three distinct persons, as Father and Son and Holy Spirit, who know and love and glorify one another. And 2,000 years ago, God the Father sent God the Son to die on the cross for sinners. And on the third day, He rose from the dead. And all who turn to Him in faith are saved from the judgment of God from their sins and granted eternal life. That's why we're here today, and it's the most amazing thing, and it's what elicits praise from the Apostle Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter doesn't tell his, his readers, these elect exiles, to do anything. This is not an imperative to bless God. This is just bless God. He doesn't give them anything to do, in fact, in this letter, until all the way down in verse 13. He starts his letter with a soaring praise of God who gives life to dead people. And why? Why start this letter like this? Well, because Peter knows that when we go through hardships, 
our heads tend to droop, and we fall into self-pity, and we focus on ourself, and we focus on our misery, and Peter would rescue his readers. He would rescue us from self-focused navel-gazing, which is so characteristic of those who suffer, and he wants to pull us up and out of ourselves. And this is why every Lord's Day morning, we start the service with singing. Singing praise to Almighty God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because praise shifts the perspective from the problem to the provider. And this is why Christians sing. Because of who God is. Because of what God has done. So what is it that causes elect exiles to go from searing pain to soaring praise? Everything that comes next. Let's keep reading. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. According to God's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. If you are a Christian, it is because of God's great mercy. It's not because you make good decisions. It's because of God's great mercy. Mercy. You did nothing to earn your salvation. Nothing qualified you for God's grace except for your sin, which required it. And this is glorious news. This is glorious news because it means that the the ground at the foot of the cross is truly level. That it did not take any less of Jesus' blood to save me than it did you. That makes us equal, equally undeserving, ill-deserving of God's grace. And so when we walk into this place, we walk into an environment that is different than anywhere else in the world. It is not based on merit. It is not based on good deeds. It is based on the kindness and mercy and grace of Almighty God. That when you walk in this place, you are truly on equal plane with everyone at the foot of the cross. If you tend to avoid church because you have some idea in your head that Christians are judgy, hypocritical, holier-than-thou types that treat others like they're better than them, well, friend... I guess the first thing I would say to you is, to whatever degree we have created that thought in you, please forgive us. It is wrong. It is wrong for us to make you feel that way. But I have to wonder, if you're truly being honest, have you truly given Christians fair treatment in that judgment? I know a lot of people. And the only people that I know who regularly gather to admit to their own hypocrisy and wrongdoing are Christians. 
in, in my experience, everyone is a hypocrite. Only the Christians are the ones who admit it and are willing to change. Because Christians understand that we have given God no reason to love us. But He loved us simply because He loves us. That's who He is. He is full of mercy. Becoming a Christian is not something that you did to yourself. It was something that God did for you. It was something that God did to you. Or to use Peter's language, it caused you to be born again. It's the same way the universe was created to exist. The sun has no more reason to boast in creating itself than you and I do have a reason to boast in eternal life. God spoke it. And it was done. Boasting is simply unbecoming of a Christian. Now, Peter didn't write this letter in English language. The phrase, he has caused us to be born again, is one word in the original language. It literally means to begat again, to be born again. God the Father gave new life. And breathed new life into a dead body. And it's very similar to the way that you are alive today. You are alive because you were alive. You didn't choose to be alive. You didn't choose to be born to your parents. You were just born to your parents. It's the same thing. God caused us to be born again. The Bible teaches that before God saved us, we were dead, dead in our trespasses and sins. Friend, I hate to break it to you. you were, you're not a decent person just trying your best to make your way along. We were sin-dead sinners without God and without hope in the world, and we preferred anything to God. But according to His great mercy, he set His electing love on us and caused us to be born again. Do you know how this happened? Skip down to verse 23 and 24. You'll see how it happened. Peter says, you have been born again. It's the same word as he used earlier. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God, which according to verse 25 is the good news that was preached to you, the gospel. God caused sin-dead sinners like us to be born again through the living and abiding Word of God, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ as it was preached. So if you are a Christian, it is because God brought the gospel to you and gave you ears that you heard that gospel. Someone shared the gospel with you, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, much like I am doing here today. You heard it and something happened. You realized that you were a sinner and you felt the weight of your sin and the consequences of your sin and you realized that you needed a Savior. And Jesus Christ became irresistibly attractive to you and you turned to Him, confessed your sin, and acknowledged that He was the Lord over your life. That was the moment, Peter says, you were born again. You became 
new, a new person with new desires, new wants, new passions, new priorities, new joys. And all of a sudden, you're thinking about Jesus all the time. And you're reading about Jesus in the Word, and then when you do, your heart is soaring in praise of Almighty God who gives life to the dead. You want to please God more than you want to please yourself, and you find yourself drawn to church and church people and drawn to your Bible, and there's a hunger in you to know more about Jesus, and the more you know about Jesus, the more you want to know about Jesus. And you can't help it, but you're telling people about Him. And you're finding yourself becoming more patient. You're finding yourself becoming more kind, more compassionate. You're finding yourself rejoicing in the middle of suffering. You give. You give to the poor. You lift up the discouraged. And you're becoming in one degree and to another more and more like Jesus himself. Now, you still sin, of course, but you hate it when you do. And you fight with all of your might to destroy it in your life. You begin to wage an all-out war against anything in your own life that would prefer something other than Jesus. And you want your whole life to be a testimony to the greatness of the glory of God. This is the new birth. This is the Christian life. So I just have to ask, is what I've just described true of you? Has this been your experience? Have you known the life-transforming, resurrected glory of God's mercy in your life? Friend, if that is not your experience, if Jesus is just a figure in history to you, not the Lord, not precious, then friend, turn from your sin. Repent and believe today. After the service, there'll be some folks up here who would, be loved, who would love to pray with you and help you to take the next step in getting to know this, this man, Jesus Christ. Let's keep reading. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What makes the Christian hope different than other hope? Why is it a living hope? Well, of course, because it's a hope in a living Savior. Our hope is alive because Jesus is alive. So long as our Savior lives, our salvation is secure. Hebrews 6 describes our hope as an anchor for the soul. Our hope in Jesus Christ is like an anchor for our soul. It's a perfect metaphor. Just think, think about what an anchor is. An anchor keeps the boat in place so that it doesn't get blown around by wind and by storms and shifting tides. The anchor digs into the sea floor, which is secure, and the vessel stays secure because the anchor is secure. But the anchor inside the boat is nothing. It's useless. It's just dead weight. The anchor is only useful when it's outside of the boat and connected to something firm 
You see, the center of Christian hope is not inside of us. It is outside of us. It is in who God is and what God has done, the only thing that will not be moved. The center of the hope for the the Christian is the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and that is outside of us. This is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to Christianity. That his resurrection is called the first fruits, the first installment, the down payment on that which is to come. That his resurrection inaugurated the new creation. We saw this last week. That if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So many Christians are holding on to this view of eternity which seems to be far more based on Plato than on Scripture. Not Plato like the stuff that your kids played with and made little shapes about Plato as in T, Plato the philosopher. So many of us see heaven as this disembodied ethereal place. Fat babies floating on clouds and playing harps kind of thing. This serene feelingless, thoughtless existence. But that is not the Bible's description of the eternal life in heaven. Heaven is very different than that. It is visceral, earthy even. The Lord Jesus was raised with a physical body. He told Thomas, put your hands here and see the marks. Put your hand on my side and feel the scar. He was physical. After the resurrection, Jesus met the disciples and cooked them breakfast fish and bread over charcoal. Seriously, the greatest breakfast ever. There's going to be eating and food in heaven, all the pleasures of this life and more that we have yet to discover without the encumbrances of sin. Philippians chapter 3 says that when Jesus returns, he will transform this lowly body into bodies like his glorious body. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but what we know is that when He appears, we will be like Him. We will be like Him. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. According to verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Dear Christian, because Jesus has risen from the dead and because you have trusted in him, because you've been united to him, you have an inheritance. Because of course you do. You were born again. You were born as a son, as a daughter of God, your father. An inheritance works like every other inheritance. He earned it, he stored it up, and he willed it to you. You did nothing to deserve it. It was just given to you on virtue of the very nature that you are his child. And it's yours. So not only did Jesus save you from hell and pardon your sin, he granted you an inheritance that, as one commentator put it, is untouched by death, unstained by evil, and unimpaired by time. God gave you new life, new joys, fulfilled your joys with Himself, and then rewards you for enjoying Him. And He did all of this. He did all of this for people 
who most of the time think about tacos more than they think about him. Is Peter's soaring praise starting to make a little bit more sense? He did this for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As glorious as that is. I mean, just, Pastor, that just feels like that's just, it's out there. I mean, what guarantee? These are just words on a page. What guarantee do we have that this is actually true? What guarantee do I have that any of this is going to be true of my life? Like, how do I know? Because, I mean, to be honest, some days I just don't, I don't feel it. Some days I just don't got it in me to treasure Jesus. That sounds exhausting. Some days I just want ice cream and Netflix and then the day to end. What guarantee do we have? Well, let's keep reading verse 5. You, you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You, dear Christian, are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation, which he granted to you through Jesus, and he will fully and finally reveal at the end. The word Peter uses here that we translate as being guarded means that God himself, God himself is running security over your life. I think it was uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, preacher from previous century, who said that if you could hear that in the room next to you, the Lord Jesus Christ was praying for you, you'd be the boldest person in the world. And the reality is, brothers and sisters, He is praying for you. You are being guarded by God's power. Nothing is coming into your life that will ultimately assail your joy in Jesus and your assurance of his love. You are being guarded through faith. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus Christ. You are guarded by God through faith in Jesus Christ. For those who struggle with doubt or assurance, please let me encourage you. Query your faith. Question it. If you're doubting whether you are in Christ, ask yourself, where is my faith? What is my faith in? Because faith has to be in the right thing. Faith in itself cannot save. You cannot put faith in faith. 
You cannot anchor your soul in your own obedience, in your own faithfulness, in your own track record. The anchor for your soul is the empty tomb, the risen and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you find yourself doubting, look to Jesus Christ. The Bible calls Him the author and finisher of the faith. Look to the one who began a good work in you, who has promised that he will complete it in the end. Brothers and sisters, we must not look at the Christian life like God is giving us the basic instructions on how to play the game and then handing us the ball and then cheering us on from the sidelines. Jesus has already won the game. The Christian life is much more like the after-game celebration. He's already won, and you're in the locker room celebrating Him and throwing champagne all over one another. He's already won the game. We just, we just get to be in the parade of victory. You are a sinner saved by grace, being guarded through faith in Jesus Christ for a salvation that is and for a salvation that has yet to be fully realized. And when Jesus returns, He will bring his inter- his in- your inheritance with Him, the new heavens and the new earth. So put off worry. Put off anxiety and the cares of this world. Put on Christ and the confident hope of eternal life that has been secured and guaranteed for you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And spend your life, spend every day you have left carrying the message of this glorious gospel everywhere you go applying it to your own life, and sharing it with others. Give everything to making Christ known. Rejoice in Jesus and celebrate with the team. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Finish it for me. Christ will come again. Let's pray. Father, we confess the full reality of Jesus' resurrection has yet to impact us as it should. And we ask, Lord, that you would forgive our sluggish hearts. We are, Lord, so often slow to believe in everything that we've heard. And we admit to you, Lord, that our view of your gospel and of your Son is too small. Even our view of our part in your redemption story is too small. And we ask that you would forgive us. Lord, for those who are here who have never trusted in Jesus Christ, as Pastor Matt prayed earlier, please give them faith to believe. Lord, keep them from repressing your spirit's conviction now. Don't let them leave this place still in sin. For those of us who are trusting in Jesus, Lord, will you fill us with the marvelous hope of everything the empty tomb means and everything that it has promised. Will you send us from this place 
with our heads up, with confidence in our step, with joy in our heart, and an eagerness to share the message of the good news of Jesus Christ with any who would hear. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the living hope that we have and for the guarantee of the life to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the Bible gives us plenty of reasons to be assured that God has forgiven us of those sins. One of those assurances comes in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, where we read that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification.